Welcome to the All About Everest podcast. This is episode three, the 1996 deaths on Everest part one. And I am your host, Pauline Reynolds Nettle. The 1996 Everest season was the deadliest season with the deadliest day. I'm going to split this episode into two parts because there's a lot of details and a lot of information. This first part will be covering the south side and the deaths in Nepal, and part two will cover the north side and the deaths in Tibet. In 1996, 12 people died in the spring season, eight in one day, and 15 people total for the whole year. At the time, this was considered the deadliest day, the deadliest season, and the deadliest year on Mount Everest. Since then, the deaths from 2014 and 2015 have exceeded those numbers. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of this episode, I just wanted to share a thought and some Everest updates. So while I was researching this episode and the last one, One of the things that I realized is that there's this invisible thread that weaves so many of these climbers together. You and I have seven degrees of separation, but in the mountaineering world, I think it's more like two. For example, the New Zealand mountaineer Russell Bryce, his name pops up a lot in uh, books and movies and documentaries. He was on the Everest Beyond the Limit docuseries in 2006 through 2009 and then he was featured on the Dying Foreverist documentary in 2007 and he's mentioned in the book The Lost Explorer by Conrad Anker and so one of the things that I think you'll notice is that the same names pop up again and again and again when you're talking about Everest And I just thought it was something interesting that I noticed that I wanted to share. So two really quick updates before we get to the rest of the episode. Yost Kobish is attempting to climb Mount Everest on the West Ridge this winter. He's up there right now. Last year, he made it to almost 7,300 meters. And this year, he hopes to reach 8,000 meters. The West Ridge isn't climbed very often, and he's doing this again after doing it last year, solo, without support, without supplemental oxygen, in alpine style. You can check his tracker. I went and I looked at it last night, and it's pretty interesting where he's at. Um, I'm also following him on Facebook Because, like I said, I'm an Everest nerd. And apparently his tent just broke apart. And so he's up there in the cold trying to figure everything out. So I hope that he can make it to out 8,000 meters. He's a young mountaineer. And I think it's great that younger people are attempting to make these summits and try new things. The second little update I wanted to share with you is that I'm really excited to watch the journey of the Full Circle Everest team. This is the first all-black group to try to summit the world's highest mountain. 
and their whole message is that outdoors is for everybody, that it should be inclusive, and that anyone can do anything. I think it's really neat, and um, there's some really good articles out there, including an interview on Ellen Arnett and an interview on NPR. I really commend them and I really hope they reach the summit to share their message because I really think that in certain communities, outdoor adventures and climbing and mountaineering, camping, backpacking, all of those things aren't necessarily attainable. And I love the message that they are spreading. So I hope to see more of them and see if they summit Everest in the springtime. This episode and next week's episode is going to cover all of the deaths that were on Mount Everest in 1996, including the eight that died on the deadliest day thus far. Um, that was on May 10th through the 11th and is usually referred to as the 1996 Everest disaster. There's a lot of reasons why so many people died that year. 1996 saw a huge increase in climbers. People realized that you could reach the summit if you had the right assistance and the right amount of money. If you were willing to pay, you could climb to the top. You could hire somebody to pack you up there, pack your gear, and make it much easier. It didn't really matter if you had experience or not. And that was one of the huge contributing factors, I think, with some of those deaths. I'm trying to be as objective as possible. There are so many different perspectives and so many people think that the deaths were caused by different things. The main causes of death contributing to the 1996 deaths on Mount Everest were the sudden arrival of a severe storm. That's when eight of those people died. Bottlenecks caused by lack of fixed ropes, huge amounts of people attempting to summit on the same day because there was a very short window, and slow climbers. Late turnaround time, some people summited way too late in the day when they shouldn't. The normal time to turn around on Mount Everest is one or two tops in the afternoon. Illness and running out of oxygen. As you listen to this episode, I really encourage you to form your own opinions. There are so many different books that were written about the 1996 Everest disaster. All of them will be included in the show notes. Some of the more popular ones are Into Thin Air by John Krakauer and Left for Dead by Beck Weathers, but there's several more out there that are really good, especially if you're looking for different perspectives. There was a lot of blame and shame for what happened that year. And I really 
encourage you to form your own opinions of what happened. So the first person to die during the 1996 Everest season was Chen Yunnan from the Taiwanese team. He died on May 9th and he succumbed to injuries from a fall. What happened was that he got out of his tent just wearing his inside boots, no crampons or anything like that. And he just slipped and fell into a crevasse. They were able to get him out, but he later succumbed to his injuries. And he was the first death that season. So between May 10th and 11th of 1996, eight people total would die on Mount Everest. Five on the southern side of the mountain and three on the northern side. Next week's episode will cover the northern side, including the deaths of the three from the Indo-Tibetan border police. There were multiple groups attempting to summit Mount Everest during the spring of 1996. We're going to focus on two of them, Mountain Madness and Adventure Consultants, because these are the groups that had the fatalities. Adventure Consultants was led by Rob Hall and two other guides, Mike Groom and Andy Harris. They had eight clients and multiple Sherpas. Mountain Madness was led by Scott Fisher and two other guides, Neil Beidelman and Anatoly Bukreve. They also had eight clients. So a little bit of background here. Adventure Consultants had three guides, Rob Hall, Mike Groom, and Andy Harris. Rob Hall was the expedition leader, and he had summited Mount Everest before. He had taken clients with him previously and had 8,000-meter peak experience. Mike Groom had also a lot of 8,000-meter peak experience. And then there was Andy Harris, who, even though he had been on mountaineering expeditions before and had a lot of experience from New Zealand, had never summited an 8,000 meter peak. They had eight clients with them. Frank Fishbeck, who had attempted Everest three times and reached the South Summit in 1994, so two years previously. Doug Hansen. He had climbed with Rob Hall in 1995, but did not reach the summit. Stuart Hutchinson was the youngest person on Hall's team, and he had previous 8,000 meter experience as well, including Broad Peak and K2. Lukasichki, I hope I said his last name right, had climbed six of the seven summits. John Krakauer, who wrote the book In Tooth and Air, uh, was a journalist on assignment. He was an accomplished technical climber, but he had no experience climbing anything over 8,000 meters. In fact, he was supposed to be part of the Mountain Madness team, but Rob Hall waived his fee so that he could get the publicity. Yasuko Namba had climbed all of the seven summits and Everest was the last one that she needed to complete her bid. 
John Tasky was the oldest climber, and he had no 8,000-meter experience. And then there was Beck Weathers, who had been climbing for over a decade and was also making a bid for the Seven Summits, but had no 8,000-meter experience at all. For those of you who don't know, the Seven Summits are the seven highest mountains on every continent. The Mountain Madness team consisted of three guides, Scott Fisher, who is the lead climbing guide, Neil Beidelman, and Anatoly Bukriv. Scott Fisher had a lot of experience climbing 8,000 meter peaks, including K2. Neil Beidelman, I'm not really sure what his experience level was, and then there was Anatoly Bukriv, who was a Russian mountaineer. He had a lot of experience climbing over 8,000 meters, but not a lot of experience guiding. The Mountain Madness clients consisted of Martin Adams, who had 8,000 meter experience, Charlotte Fox, who had climbed all 53 of the 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado and two 8,000 meter peaks. Lena Gummelgard, Del Cruz, and he was the first one who signed up for the 1996 expedition. Tim Madsen, who had no 8,000 meter experience but had climbed a lot in Colorado and the Canadian Rockies. Sandy Pittman, who had climbed six of the seven summits and she was making a bid for all seven of them. Pete Schoening, who had experience on 8,000 meter peaks and Pete's nephew, Cleve Schoening. I am trying to stick to the facts as much as possible but keep in mind that there are so many different stories about what happened. There's a lot of contradicting and conflicting information. And John Krakauer even mentions that at the very beginning of his book. So before everyone decided to attempt the summit during that spring season, all of the groups got together and decided to share information and work together because the weather window was really small. They had all agreed to work together to set the fixed ropes. Um, Mountain Madness and Adventure Consultants, they climbed up one after the other. Shortly after midnight on the 10th of May in 1996, Adventure Consultants began their summit and were joined by Mountain Madness, which was Scott Fisher's team. It turns out that the set ropes had not been fixed, and so it caused everything to start bottlenecking at the balcony, and the clients were delayed almost an hour. Bottlenecks have become more and more common during the Everest climbing seasons, 
and part of that is overcrowding and inexperience and slower climbers. When they reach the Hillary step, again, no fixed line, and they had to wait again. So their first delay was over half an hour just standing there. Their second delay was over an hour, and there were over 30 climbers attempting the summit at the same time. They had previously agreed that the turnaround time should be no later than two o'clock. It's been determined that the later you summit, the riskier it is because you're climbing down in the dark and most of the deaths happen during descent. Not all of the clients reached the summit. Some of them had stayed at base camp and others had turned around. Pete Schoening stayed at base camp. Cruz was suffering from altitude sickness and possibly haze, which is high altitude cerebral edema. And so he stopped at camp one. At the bottleneck on the Hillary step, Hutchison, Kosicki, and Tasky returned towards Camp 4 because they were afraid that they were not going to have enough oxygen. The first one to reach the summit was Anatoly Bookreeve. He reached the summit at 1.07. Many of the climbers hadn't even reached it by 2 o'clock which, as I had mentioned, was the agreed-upon turnaround time for safety reasons. Bukreev began his descent back down at 2.30, and apparently he left some of the clients behind. Um, he says that it was so that he could be ready to help struggling clients that hadn't made it to the top or were coming down. Um, but many of the people there that were there that season pretty much felt that he had abandoned all of his clients. And like I said, he didn't have a lot of guiding experience. By the time that Bukreev began his descent, um, Hall, Krakauer, Harris, Beidelman, Namba, and all of the Mountain Madness clients had reached the summit. The weather wasn't looking too bad at 2.30, and then at 3 o'clock, snow started to fall, and it started getting dark fairly early. As everyone was climbing back down, they encountered Doug Hansen, who still hadn't made it to the summit. So already it's after three o'clock. Um, the Sherpas tried encouraging him to come down, but he was insisting that he was going to reach the summit. He had tried the year before and got almost all the way to the top and had to turn around. So Rob Hall decided to go back up with Doug Hansen so he could make the summit. Scott Fisher didn't reach the summit until 345. 
He was super exhausted and he may have been ill as well as suffering from hape or haste. And Doug Hansen made the summit closer to five o'clock. So this is already three hours past the turnaround window. At this point, you have people scattered all along the summit. All of them are attempting to come down. The blizzard's getting worse. The temperatures are dropping. Um, the snow is reducing visibility, burying the fixed ropes, and they're having a hard time finding their way down. Hall radioed for help, saying that uh, Doug Hansen had fallen unconscious but was still alive, but they were stuck. Apparently, Andy Harris um, tried to reach them carrying supplementary oxygen and water. He may or may not have reached them. Um, there's conflicting stories about what exactly happened to Andy Harris. Sometime in the night, he disappeared. Several climbers got lost during the storm. Beidelman, Cleve Schoening, Fox, Pittman, Madsen, and Gamelgard from Mountain Madness, and Mike Groom, Beck Weathers, and Yasuko Namba from Adventure Consultants got lost in the blizzard. They had no idea where they were at, so they all huddled together. The onset of the blizzard where it got really bad, they say it was around 6 o'clock and it eased around midnight. So at this point, you have Hall and Hansen that are stuck up on the mountain. And you have Scott Fisher up there as well, along with Gao. And Andy Harris has disappeared. Once the blizzard had eased, Beidelman, Groom, Gamelgard, and Shoning went off to find camp as well as find help. Madsen and Fox remained with the group, possibly to shout for rescuers, or maybe because they weren't able to continue at that point. Bukreve set out from Camp 4 to um, try and find everyone. And he located the climbers and he brought back Pittman, Madsen, and Fox. They think that he prioritized those climates, prioritized those clients because they were from his team. And maybe he left Namba there because she was with Adventure Consultants. Um, Bookroof said he did not see Weathers, but apparently, um, from many of the accounts, Beck Weathers and Namba were considered beyond help, and they were left there.
by the time that all of the climbers got back to camp four, they were so exhausted, hurt, and suffering from all sorts of things, including frostbite, that they felt they were unable to reach Namba and Weathers. On the early morning of May 11th, Hall was able to radio base camp, stating that he was on the south summit at about 8,749 meters, so he was able to survive the night. He reported that Harris had reached them, but was gone. Doug Hansen at that point had already passed away. Hall tried to get back down, but his hands and feet were so frostbitten that he was having a hard time traversing the fixed lines. And in the afternoon, he radioed base camp and let them know he wasn't going to make it. So he was able to talk to his wife, Jan, by satellite phone. She was pregnant with their first baby and... She was also an experienced climber and probably would have been up there with them if she had not been pregnant. So at least he was able to say goodbye. On the afternoon of the 10th, Stuart Hutchinson, who had not attempted the summit, he launched another search for weathers in Namba. He did find them alive, but they weren't responsive and their condition was so bad that he felt that they were beyond hope. He decided to just leave them because there was no way that they could save Namba and Beckweathers. But later in the day, somehow, miraculously, Weathers regained consciousness and he was able to get into camp four by himself. Nobody's really sure how it happened. He was suffering from really bad hypothermia and frostbite. In fact, he lost his nose, his right hand, a lot of his right arm and all of the fingers on his left hand. He was eventually life lighted out by helicopter along with Gao. On the afternoon of the 11th, another rescue team was able to locate Fisher and Gao, but Fisher's condition was so bad that they felt that he was beyond saving and they were able to rescue Gao. So from the adventure consultants team, the climbers that died were Rob Hall, Doug Hansen, Yasuko Namba, and Andy Harris. I think it's really sad that so many of their group passed away. At least Rob Hall was able to say goodbye to his wife. Doug Hansen was able to summit Mount Everest and that was something he really wanted to do. Yasuko Namba did complete her bid of the seven summits because Mount Everest was the last one that she needed to accomplish that feat. 
and at the time she was the oldest woman to have summited Mount Everest. And then you have Andy Harris, and to this day, no one has found his body. Mountain Madness had two casualties. Scott Fisher, who died on the mountain, and the Sherpa Nawang Topcha. I totally butchered that one. The Sherpa was um, hospitalized in April because of high-altitude pulmonary edema, and he died on June 9th. So even though he didn't pass away on the mountain, he is considered one of those who passed away during the 1996 Everest season. Scott Fisher was considered a mountaineering rock star and one to watch, and it's really unfortunate that he passed away. Later in the season, on May 25th, Bruce Herod from the South African team would pass away by the Hillary Step. Apparently, he got tangled in the ropes while he was descending. He was left behind by his team, there's a whole lot of controversial stuff about the South African team and their summit attempt, and that, I think, will be its own episode. But supposedly the leader of that team wasn't very truthful when he talked about his experience. Um, he wasn't truthful when he recruited the climbers and was almost irresponsible. But again, I'll let you be the judge of that and this will be visited at a later date because I think it's really important to even look at like the ugly side of mountaineering and the whole South African team story from 1996 is maybe even horrific. But I'll let you judge that. It'll probably be in the next five to six episodes when we'll discuss that. So on the south side, you have the first death on May 9th. And then you have Scott Fisher, Rob Hall, Doug Hansen, Andy Harris, and Yasuko Namba, who died on May 10th and 11th during the blizzard. You also have Bruce Herod, who died on May 25th, and Nawang Topche, who died on June 6th. Those are all of the deaths that were on the south side during the spring season. Besides the normal risks on Mount Everest, like falling or altitude sickness, this season in particular had a couple other things that may or may not have caused deaths. The severe storm really caused, I think, the majority of them. Even though these teams had access to weather reports, I know from firsthand experience the weather can change on a dime. They say in Montana, if you don't like the weather, wait 10 seconds. It can be sunny and 70 degrees, and an hour later, 
below freezing and blizzarding. So I think that that is what happened or at least a portion of it. The issue with the fixed ropes also caused part of the people dying. If you're in the death zone and you can't breathe well, there's not a lot of oxygen, it's cold, and then you have to stand there and wait, that of course is not the best thing. Also, the turnaround time of two o'clock, right? The reason why they set a turnaround time was because it is dangerous coming down from Everest in general. You are exhausted. You've been in the death zone for quite some time. The temperatures are dropping. It's getting dark. And people coming back down so late in the day made things worse. Also, several of the climbers got sick. I think Scott Fisher and Andy Harris had some stomach issues, but then you also have altitude sickness, which it affects everyone differently. And that was definitely something that contributed to some of the deaths. And then last but not least, oxygen. And this is something that is talked about all the time, every single season. It's about the bottled oxygen. Um, some people think you have to climb with it. Some people think that you don't. But let's face it, a lot of people would not be able to summit Mount Everest without it. The death zone has really thin air. So if you have that supplemental oxygen, you're less likely to get sick from altitude sickness your energy levels are a little bit more up. You can breathe better. And the whole fact that they ran out of oxygen or they lost oxygen or oxygen was stolen, because again, there's a lot of different stories, was probably another factor into some of the deaths. One thing that I didn't really talk about was radios. Not everybody had one, and it's becoming more and more common that people carry radios with them or beacons or sat phones or things like that. So if they get into trouble, they can reach out for help. And not everyone had radios. Some of the radios weren't working, so that may have been a factor, but I think it wasn't as big a factor as the huge blizzard and the cold. I'm sorry this episode is so long. I'm glad I split it into two parts. Next week, I'm going to finish it up with talking about the deaths that occurred on the northern side of Everest. 1996 was the year that Sawing Paljor died, and he died on the north side. He's also known as Green Boots, and you may have heard about him before. I did talk about him during last episode. 
make sure that you rate, subscribe, and follow so that I can continue to come out with more episodes. You can follow us on social media at All About Everest Podcast, as well as find the show notes at mamabearoutdoors.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.